It's a great honor to be speaking at, in these series. This has a fantastic tradition, and uh, there's some very illustrious speakers who've given these lunch hour talkers before, talks before. So uh, that's a bit of pressure on me. So I'll uh, try and uh, deliver something that's accessible. Please do feel free to interrupt me at any point if you think either I've got it wrong or that you don't understand something. But we'll try and make some time for questions at the end. What I'll be talking about uh, today is Alzheimer's disease, and in particular, the move at the moment to try and move treatment trials, and ultimately treatments, earlier in the disease. Ideally, even before people have suffered any cognitive decline. And so my title, somewhat provocatively, is about whether this is fanciful or feasible. And what I'll particularly be uh, talking about, I'll try and take a, tell a bit of a story about uh, Alzheimer's disease to put it into context, but I'll be talking about whether or not we can see the changes of Alzheimer's disease in that pre-symptomatic period, because that will be critical to any treatment trials we might like to mount. So the, the journey I, I want to talk about today uh, extends over 100 years and starts in, in Germany. And then there's the most recent installment takes us to Colombia. That's to try and in, intrigue you as how those might be interlinked. And where we start our journey is just over 100 years ago. And Alzheimer, who you see up here on, on the, the, the left of your picture, he um, described in a woman who was uh, what was regarded as, as very young, 51 uh, at that stage, cognitive decline, problems, and behavioral changes. And then he described the features of the disease at a microscopic level that uh, have given rise to uh, our, our hallmarks, our understanding of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, of the disease that now bears his name. And on the right, you'll see Columbia, and you'll see a screenshot from the news the weekend just gone. And we'll try and take, take you on that journey and see whether we can link the two together. So what Alzheimer described, this is a picture of August D, his patient there. And on the bottom left, you'll see his beautiful drawings of these are neurofibrillary tangles. They're part of the things that you see that appear within brain cells. And it's the brain transport system going wrong. And it all becomes tangled up. But in addition, he described something called amyloid plaques. And I want you to sort of hang on to that, because we'll come back to that. And these amyloid plaques are lumps of protein that the brain finds indigestible. And they appear, and they are a marker of Alzheimer's disease. And in a parallel, I think, to the changes, some of the changes I'll be talking about over the last 10 or 20 years of advances in imaging, what really gave Alzheimer a fantastic opportunity to make an advance here was not just his um, very thoughtful uh, analysis of what was going on, but he, he had the benefit of a technological advance in imaging, not magnetic resonance imaging, as I'm going to be talking about, 
but from the German dye industry. They had dyes that were able, with these slices of brain tissue, to identify these abnormal proteins. And uh, the, the, the dyes they put on were able to see down the microscope, and of course he had the best German Zeiss microscopes, which were, uh, gave him these fantastic images of what was going wrong in the brain of his, his patient there. And he painstakingly described and drew all these different features. And most recently, the, about a few years ago, people went back and remarkably, this is the emission record for Auguste, his patient. Now, I wish our medical records could find things from a few weeks ago, never mind 100 years earlier, but I think it was a fantastic triumph that he could do that. And you might be able to see, up here on the right, you might be able to see, this is Auguste trying to write her name, and there's Frankfurt down there, which is where she was in hospital for five years, having been admitted by, with, with cognitive decline and behavioral problems. And the features, really, which, he, which are still the mainstay of what we um, see as, as, the, as the, the pathological marks of Alzheimer's disease, where he describes. So there's brain atrophy. This is a, a slice of a, a half of a brain, and there's just a slice of it. And this structure here is intimately related to memory. It's called the hippocampus, and it's completely shrunken away. But he described these neurofibrillary tangles within brain cells, which I was telling you about, and these lumps of amyloid plaque, which are these indigestible bits of protein, and then a whole lot of rubbish around it, which is bits of broken up ner nerve cells as well. And I just thought you might like to contrast. These are modern images of these tangles. And I would like to suggest that you can sort of see that he's captured some of the key features uh, back in 1906 that we uh, now can look at. So what, what actually do we mean? And these words, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, are often used very interchangeably, uh, and wrongly so. So what, what is dementia? Uh, dementia is really no more specific than saying brain failure. And it's not that a helpful a term, but we all understand it to some extent. It's usually acquired, usually progressive, and involves multiple cognitive domains. So it's not just losing one particular brain function, be it language or memory, but actually multiple domains. And for definitional purposes, it has to be sufficient because we're all losing cognitive function one way or another from a very early age, it has to be sufficient to be interfering with our activities of daily living. And you can see how that could be quite arbitrary, depending upon what your normal activities are. Uh, and there are many causes, and Alzheimer's disease is the most uh, common. And it's getting more common, frighteningly so. And it's really focusing the minds of governments and research bodies, because there is a tremendous epidemic, which I don't think we've fully woken up to. I think the people who project health and social care costs are terrified by it, but I think we all don't fully realize. And the numbers are, are fairly terrifying. 800,000 people with dementia in the UK. That's one new case every three minutes. Almost half of the population have a close family member or friend with dementia. The 
in this room, one third of the people will end up with dementia. And I'm afraid, uh, it's no, no comment on, on what I, sorry, uh, one third of the people in this room will uh, develop de dementia just on a statistical basis. And what we can um, say is, I don't know whether it's any comfort, is that you've got a higher risk than the people out on the street. And that's nothing to do with li listening to me, I, I promise you. Um, but it's to do with the fact that you're protected from other diseases because you're of interested in Alzheimer's disease for the first point, but you're more likely to be of higher socioeconomic and educational status that will pr protect you from other illnesses. And it's because of that increasing longevity that dementia numbers are so rapidly increasing. And that's because the, your, the prevalence of dementia doubles with every five years beyond the age of 60, really, so that only one in a 1,000 people will have dementia in the age group 40 to 65, but one in five over 80. And Alzheimer's disease, as I said, is the most common cause. It counts for 50 to 60%, but there are other causes. And differentiating, it is important as part of the diagnostic process. Dementia and Alzheimer's disease affects far more than the individual, though. And these are absolutely devastating diseases. And anybody who know, has had a loved one or, some, or has cared for somebody with Alzheimer's disease knows just how uh, We've been married 51 years. We got married in 1947. The first symptoms was memory, unless you say memory loss. She seemed to um, forget things. It started off not um, too bad, and gradually things got worse and worse. And um, at the present time, it's, I don't know, it seemed to me as though I've really reached the end of the road with having to um, get up in the morning, bath her, dress her, decide what clothes she's going to put on. And um, then, of course, there's the meals to get ready. And, and the unfortunate thing, again, is, is not being able to even talk to me. It's worse than anything I've come across, actually. Cost to the UK economy is 23 billion. Uh, dementia worldwide is the equivalent in economic terms of the 18th largest economy. But the cost, the devastation to individual lives, I mean, I can't be overstated. And people describe the very sad aspect very early on of no longer being able to have that level of interaction with somebody that they had previously enjoyed and just a, a loss of the, uh, the, the, the understanding of what they've shared. So it's almost like there is sort of the, the fabric of shared experiences starts to unravel and then eventually that's lost. And it's, it's absolutely devastating because it is in many ways attacking all the parts that make us a sort of higher thinking be, being and the ability to form relationships. So some of the intrinsic core emotional and basic functions are preserved until late, but memory is often a very early feature. And it's very difficult to capture the full devastation 
of this disease, even though it starts with memory, and forgetfulness is the common feature, most commonly early on, it affects all sorts of our higher functions, as perhaps exemplified by uh, an artist that had done, very well-known artist who'd done self-portraits all through his life. That had been a, a, a feature of his art. And he came to see us uh, worrying about uh, his memory. And shortly after, he got a diagnosis uh, at our center of probable Alzheimer's disease. We weren't quite sure. It was sort of quite mild at that stage. Uh, he, he painted this, which he described as the looking out through a skylight or a window at an uncertain future. And that's images he drew a year later and then three years after that. The, the, the loss often, which is a saving grace sometimes, is not accompanied by insight into how much loss there is. But these are, are devastating diseases for the individual and for uh, the whole family. And everybody who knows somebody with Alzheimer's disease, loves somebody with Alzheimer's disease, experiences that um, great sense of loss, uh, a loss that is over quite a long, prolonged period, because people may have a disease course of eight years or so uh, until often ending up in a very dependent state. So if there is this damage going on within the brain and all these functions, what can we see? What can we see that Alzheimer couldn't see? Well, I'm going to start by talking about magnetic resonance imaging. This is brain scans that are uh, involved as going into a, a big magnet and taking a, a, a picture of, of the brain. And so what I'd like to show you here is this is somebody, these are, this is a, on the left of the image, this is somebody with Alzheimer's disease. And on the right is a normal control of the same age. And what you will see is these black areas, they're fluid-filled spaces called the ventricles. And they take up space as the brain loses brain cells. So here on the left, that is larger than that on the right. And in, if you now look at this structure here, this again is the hippocampus that I mentioned before. You'll notice that there's a lot of black around that when you compare with the equivalent normal hippocampus on the right. And so it's in some ways remarkable that people function as well as they do. This is a series of images. This is somebody, a brain scan uh, at the beginning, and then 18 months later, and then a further 18 months. And this beginning that I described here is, I chose that word deliberately because it's when they were diagnosed and when we think that their, their disease was beginning. But I'll try and convince you that, that, that actually that's not at all the beginning of the disease, and that there's been a long pre-symptomatic period that we can now see. But look at this loss. Here, this is the hippocampus, 18 months, another 18 months. It's no wonder that people's memories are so damaged. And with the technique that, that, that we was developed here at UCL, which is of matching brain scans so we can see quite precisely. So these brain scans cover the whole brain. They cover it to a detail of one millimeter. So that's the thickness of your thumbnail. And there may be 120 slices through your brain acquired in five or 10 minutes. So we get an exquisite picture of the structure of your brain. So if we look at this individual here, first scan, and then matched on top of that should be their second scan. So if I flick between them, can you see the, those dark, sorry, if we go back, can you see those dark regions, the ventricles, 
expanding. That's over just one year. So what you're seeing is what Alzheimer's wasn't able to see. You're seeing the devastation of Alzheimer's disease as it progresses. Look again at the hippocampus. You can just see it melting away. And that is neuronal destruction, the connections that make up our memories, leading to volume loss. But if we measure those structures very carefully, we'll see that even when people come to diagnosis at the very beginning of the uh, diagnostic process, the hippocampus may be down by 10 or 20%. So it's already lost a lot of volume. So that immediately tells us that there must have been destruction going on for some period before. How long? That's one of the questions. And we can get a bit of a suggestion from our knowledge that the hippocampus is only shrinking at that point at 3 or 4% per year. So you think, well, maybe there must have been structural loss for four or five years or maybe more. But if we try and address these questions, what we're recognizing is that there is a long preclinical period. And even before Alzheimer's disease and the dementia that's associated with it can be diagnosed, we've got memory problems that precede that quite some time. And what we want to know is whether we could look earlier. And that has been part of the research that we've been doing here for now 20 years or more. And one question was that we, we, we thought, thinking about how could we study people productively and sensibly in advance of them having symptoms? How would we know the right people to study? And so we turned to those very rare families, which actually initially had been described in the, in, in the UK, where the Alzheimer's disease develops when people are in their 30s or 40s or 50s. I must say this is extremely rare. But these families are aware that every second individual in their family has had the disease. And they are very, very generous at taking part in research. So this is a family tree here. This is, in red, is a member of this generation here who is well but doesn't know whether they carry a gene or not. But they know that an older brother was affected and that a mother was affected and an aunt was affected and a grandfather was affected. And they've seen this walk through their family. And they, have, they are very incredibly generous about taking part in research and say, we want to do something. I know it won't necessarily help me, but I would like to help with research. And so we have people like this lady. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you see as a problem, if you have any problem with your memory? Yes, um, there are on, not every day, but on certain days, there are short-term memory problems, definitely. Oh, Everybody in their family worry about I don't memory. know. It, it's nothing specific. It's just some, it just slips, literally, like, slips out of your mind. And even sometimes when you're reminded of it, you don't, I wouldn't necessarily remember. But, but coming here today, running oh, no. a household, getting the no, kids I'm to school... It all, yeah, all it, it's, all, it's all getting done, yeah. And coming here today, tell me how you did that. Um, I went to Witten Station, which is our local one. Changed for, on that, that's an overground train. So I changed then at Richmond, got on the underground, and then we changed again at Acton to get onto the Piccadilly. With so, so she's Marianne describing. Yeah. I didn't manage to lose either. Oh, God, any of this. No. <laughs> no, she's describing a cognitive task that I certainly have struggled with. I've got, 
I'm very pleased to say I've got my daughter here with me today, which is very, very nice. And I used to struggle with managing two daughters on, on the tube uh, system, so I think it's a quite a tricky cognitive task, which she's managing very well. So you can see just how difficult it would be seeing this lady to say, is there anything wrong? She's worried about her memory. So is everybody in their family, understandably. Have they got... So we undertook a study where we would scan people every year from, who were from these families. And this is her imaging. And what you'll see is a series of images. As you can see here, very healthy-looking hippocampus, small ventricles. And these are our annual scans. So you can see, I hope you were able to see there. Was it clear you could see the loss? So the question is, when was that video taken? This is that loss being mapped here. So this curve that you see falling down here, that's the loss of total brain volume. Not of the specific areas like the hippocampus, but that's global brain loss. And the video is taken here. So several of those slices you saw were prior to that video. So there's a lot going on. The brain is fantastic at coping, and the social facade kicks in so that we cover up. And if we look at her scans again, this is the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. This is when the video was taken. And in red, you can see the areas that were lost relative to the, the first scan in 93. So at this stage, when she's functioning so well, already there is remarkably widespread losses. And when taking large numbers of people, we see these profiles. The red are the gene carriers, and the blue are the people who are not gene carriers. So they're, the red people, are, uh, people in red are destined to develop the disease. At some point, the blue are not. We can show a curve here so that we can see in gray is when a diagnosis was possible. And that red line dropping down is the changes that are occurring pre-symptomatically. And all these changes are structure. This is actual brain being lost. So, but, but Alzheimer described, if you remember, those amyloid plaques and those neurofibrillary tangles. And surely the, there must be a lot of damage to cells before we get this gross volume loss. It must be. This is a final common pathway to actually be losing brain tissue to this extent. There must be things that precede that. Even though that we're seeing these structural changes are preceding symptoms, the thought was perhaps there were changes many years before those changes. But we weren't able. The only way we could have done it is to actually take a piece of somebody's brain and do that repeatedly over the years. Now, that's difficult with ethics committees, and very few people will, will volunteer. But so we, because we can't, we couldn't see these proteins. We couldn't see these tangles until just about a decade ago. Not quite, actually. I remember when the first presentation of this was made about eight years ago. People took the dyes that Alzheimer had worked with and modified them a bit so they could get into the brain and attached a radioactive tracer to them. It took, I, I described that in about 15 seconds. It took them many, many years to do that. So what they did is they took what stained these amyloid plaques that I showed you, found a way to get into the brain, and then 
a way to scan it. And these were using something called PET scans. And this is in two of my patients. The red and yellow describe where that protein is present, that protein that's a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, that indigestible, <coughs> neuronal damaging, probably, proteins filling up the brain. And these two people, both with memory complaints, are complaining of memory. This person has a completely normal scan. And for many years afterwards, after he took early retirement for the job he didn't like, he sent me Christmas cards saying he was doing extremely well, and his Alzheimer's seems to have stopped. Whereas, unfortunately, this person has progressed cognitively. So this is a marker of the pathology that probably precedes that volume loss that I showed you, which precedes the symptoms, which precedes the functional decline. So we can see a cascade down here. So if we can track these changes, could we, what would the chance of instituting treatments at that stage? And when would the right place? If I was to put the question to you, if, when would you want a treatment? Who would want the treatment before symptoms as opposed to those who'd like it after? I think that very few people would put up their hand to say they would like it when they were mute and bedbound. None of us want that. But would you want an experimental treatment 20 years before? If I scanned you and said 20 years, who would want one choosing between 20 years before and one years before? You only get one vote. 20 years before. Who would want a treatment 20 years before? Okay. You're very brave. What if I tell you there might be something better in two or three years and it's risky? And actually, you may get some horrible brain inflammation because I, you know, I just kind of cooked this up in the Dementia Research Center kitchen, and, and we think it might work, but we don't really know, but I'd like to give it a go. So those are the problems that, that people are wrestling with now because we want to move to these treatments, to these trials earlier, but what's the right time? What is the window that we can see it? And who would we choose? And people are struggling between those people who say, well, and there's a big trial about to start where thousands of people are going to be screened. It's starting in the States. We want to do similar things here, where they'll look at whether or not people have these amyloid changes in the brain. And then they'll ask them whether they would want to go into a treatment trial. But that, those amyloid changes might be 15 years before symptoms, and you might be able to die perfectly happily with the amyloid in your brain. So some of us feel that actually what we need is to see that the changes are in the brain, and at least for the first trials, actually be able to pick up some very early changes of destruction as well, something I call a proximity marker, knowing that you're in that high-risk period. But I don't know the answers to this. But what I am convinced is that we need to do these trials, and the whole of medicine has shown us that intervening early, they're very... I, challenge anybody to come up with a disease that's better treated at the late stages rather than the early stages. So who are we going to, how, could we do these in familial cases? Could we just do this in healthy elderly people who volunteer for having an amyloid scan? And actually what's going to happen is there are going to be multiple different approaches. And to take you now to Colombia, probably one of the conquistadors went over to Colombia carrying a genetic mutation for Alzheimer's disease. And he 
he or she must have been pretty successful because they've got very large families. So there's a kindred of probably 5,000 people in Colombia who are maybe at risk. And that brings me to where I began my talk. Now, last year, our science editor Tom Clark went to Colombia to a remote mountainous region where many families have a 50% chance of developing Alzheimer's. The villagers have agreed to allow scientists to study what's wrong and monitoring their condition whilst uh, they're alive and donating their brains after death. Now, research based on their plight has been published in The Lancet. Here's Tom Clark again. So these families are really keen to take part in research, and actually that's, that's common. And so there's a trial that will be started in the States looking at people with amyloid imaging. There's a trial based in Colombia with these families, and we're going to take part in a trial which is international with these uh, rare families who we've been studying for 20 years to try new therapies pre-symptomatically with the ultimate aim of being a prevention therapy. Now, I started my title, my talk, by saying, is it feasible or fanciful? We know we can see these changes. We know it's possible to mount the trials. Whether they will work, we don't know. But the US has launched the first prevention trial. And most recently, this is the trial that, that's international that will take people at, the, at UCL, as well as Australia and America. And so 100 years on, from those findings in, 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 from Frankfurt, we can say that we know there's a preclinical period, and we can track those changes, and now is the time to take action against it. And so I'd just really like to end by thanking so much the, well, thank you for coming, but thanking particularly the families who just remarkably generous who I've studied.